Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Tuparev Technologies. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason Snow. Hi, Stephen. How you doing? I'm good. It's just the two of us, just a regular episode. Uh, yeah, it's not a not a special episode of any kind. It's been a little while since we had one of those, I think. And the document sure shows it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Stuff that we missed and things that have happened in the last fortnight or, or longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just dive in. There's so, so much to cover in this episode. Yeah. Uh, um, I want to start on Mars. Okay. May I? Yes, please. May I start on Mars with perse- Perseverance? Percy? Percy! A little Percy update. Lots of stuff going on with Perseverance. It unfolded all its parts. Two wind sensors. The robotic arm, you know, put up its cameras. It's all uh, sort of like unfolded and ready for action. It's like stretching after a long car ride. That's exactly what it's like. And uh, it got a... <laughs> They sent up a software update to Mars, as you do. You know, every there's always you turn something on. You always have to do a software update. Yeah, I, I read about this. Basically, the uh, the computer in Perseverance and like all spacecraft is relatively limited, and so it has specific software for the crews and landing stages. And then once you don't need those anymore, you can upload your software for driving around and doing science stuff. Yeah, why have um. Why have that taking up space? You can, you know, everything's lighter, uses less energy, whatever it is. And then once the traveling part is over, you do a software update for being on the ground. But I just, I like to imagine the, how fraught that is. I'm sure they've got lots of backups and, you know, yeah. ways to go, but still you're pushing up a software update. Yeah. And, and, pers- and Perseverance, like other spacecraft, have an A and B computer. And so I'd imagine that they take one of them and leave it yes. with the old software until they make sure everything's good. Exactly. Exactly. So they did all of that. It's been uploading a lot of pictures. They did a test drive, drove about 21 feet. That's six and a half meters. Took pictures, looked back. They actually kind of went forward and backed up a little bit, took pictures of the landing spot. It's pretty cool. You can see it's like a lighter kind of uh, circle where clearly the, the rocket the, of the sky crane was blasting the surface and kind of blowing off some of the, the light dust. So you can see that spot. Um, and eventually this is a really short you know 21 feet but eventually it's going to drive per jaunt basically it can drive about 650 feet which is 200 meters so quite a lot of 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 space when it's up at full speed but it'll be a while before they get up to that there they got a lot of stuff to check out they got to find a place to drop their little helicopter buddy to do the experimental mars helicopter experiment so that's the thing that they have to do it's on their early to-do list in this mission um you know you don't want that thing uh, bouncing around and potentially getting damaged so they want to find a good spot to to leave it and then that's the way that works is that it actually sort of like drops down from the bottom of perseverance and then perseverance uh drives away and then it's got the helicopter has its own uh, you know, own space, own personal space to do what it wants. <laughs> Don't leave me! No! And also, I, I'm sure Perseverance doesn't want to get get uh, hit, by, <laughs> hit by a helicopter. No, or something. Like, so, so you want to just, you want to, and then it's got to do its off-roading and doesn't want to break the helicopter. So they, this is the this is the system. And so they will do that. And the helicopter stuff's going to happen fairly early in the mission. Um, and they're driving, uh, they've got to drive around some uh, some dunes and stuff. Uh, to get to the Delta, which is sort of like the first big milestone for 
perseverance. This is an outflow channel. This is one of the reasons they're, it's the reason they're there, basically. It's an outflow channel, clearly uh, shaped like you would have an outflow channel from water flowing on Earth. Uh, that it, when there was water on Mars, it cleared, you know, it seemed to fill Jezero Crater with water. They're in Jezero Crater. And this is the delta where obviously the outflow of liquid has pushed sediment down. It should be, uh, you can actually see the kind of hills that are part of this delta from the landing site. So it should be pretty spectacular when they get uh, when they get over there. So that's that's sort of the first uh, long distance uh, location that they're going to be checking out and a lot to look at over there. That's that's the, the prime stuff. Um, and if you're curious about where Perseverance is, is, there is a website that NASA has set up that uh, is basically where is the rover. <laughs> and it's got a photo of the landing site and it's got uh, a little mark and a little lines of like where it's driven. So you can see right now you can zoom way in. You can see the two little like ja mini jaunts that it did just to to do its test drive, but it will be tracking where it is um, on that map so that you can always check out like where it's going and, and where it's been. Yeah. I, I think that's a really cool thing they've done because you can check in and you can click on any of the little nodes and it'll tell you on what, uh, what day it was and overall distance. And I think this page is going to get really exciting once they, they get going underway. Uh, and one other little perseverance update is the scientists at the Jet Propulsion Lab have unofficially named the landing site of Perseverance, and they've called it the Octavia E. Butler landing site. Octavia Butler was a much-honored science fiction writer and also a native of Pasadena, California, where JPL is located. So honoring one of their uh, their own people from Pasadena and with a great legacy, her own self, Octavia Butler, who passed away. Um, about a decade ago, I want to say, maybe even a little longer. And uh, so they've named the landing site after her. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Mars Ascent Propulsion System. So a, a big part of the Perseverance rover is to collect samples and do science on board, but it can also collect samples, put them into sample tubes, and then leave them on the surface. And the idea is that a later mission will come, scoop them all up, and return them to Earth. And we've talked about this. This is like a relay race where one spacecraft will gather, one spacecraft will lift off the uh. the surface of Mars, becoming the first rocket launch on another planet, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, we're we're you know the, we're gonna fire off a rocket from Mars and get it out, uh, you know, and get it into space from Mars. That's a uh, that's new. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it like meets up with this orbiting spacecraft and then it then it makes it back to Earth and re-enters our atmosphere and then we have Mars rocks on Earth. Yeah. Uh, that launching segment, that, that sort of middle step, uh, has been, uh, the contract has been awarded to Northrop Grumman uh, to build this ascent propulsion system. Um, and there'll be a uh, sample retriever lander mission, uh, which has this little rover that goes out and scoops up all the tubes and then it comes back and once it comes back and lifting off that's what Northrop Grumman is going to be working on uh, this is big and complicated and so they're breaking it down into individual steps because even to get to the surface this all has to be built into a lander right like there's so many moving parts here but uh, this uh, will begin work this is called the Mars Dependent Propulsion System like we said maps straightforward sure. good yeah. I like it yeah, and so this is this is one of the parts, and kind of a big part, right? Because you got to be able to 
fire that thing off. So it's got to ride all the way to Mars and get down to the surface, and then it has to have the ability to then shoot back up with the samples and rendezvous with a spacecraft that's going to take it back to Earth. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. But this is a, they're moving ahead with this with uh, with Northrop Grumman doing the doing the build. So onward to the the continuing. We're going to be hearing a lot about Mars sample return in the next decade or so because perseverance is step one but it is a it's like a five-step process it's <laughs> yeah. there's a lot a lot to, that has to happen here yeah but it, it is really exciting i think out of maybe everything sort of active right now in robotic spacecraft missions i think the return sample from mars maybe is what gets me the most excited because we just mm. haven't been able to do it before and it's going to be really hard and really complicated but bringing those samples to Earth, just like we did with lunar samples 60 years ago, having those on Earth in our labs here can tell us way more, way quicker than what these rovers can do. And that's right. not to discount what the rovers do. It's impressive on its own right. But this is a totally different level when you can put your hands on them directly. Exactly right. Well, uh, we have another update from Mars. And Stephen, I need you to I need you to do this one because you've been telling us all along the tale of the Mars Insight Mole. That's right. We've reached the last mole update. Yeah, I've, I've been on Mole Watch for two years now. Uh, this is part of the Mars Insight Lander. Uh, Insight had uh, several different scientific instruments on board, one looking at seismic activity, so studying Mars quakes. Uh, it could also measure things in the atmosphere and uh, wind speed and direction, so trying to get an understanding of that better. And then the uh, third major one was the mole. And this was a temperature probe that uh, Lander would set out on the surface and it would burrow itself down. Uh, the goal was at least 10 feet, but they could have gone as deep as 16 feet below the surface. And that would give them internal temperature data about the planet. It would also work in conjunction with the seismic measurements from the surface. So you could have one underground, one above ground. And uh, as you've listened to the show over the last two years, you know this has been a real challenge for JPL and for NASA to get this uh, instrument to to burrow into the ground. When they tried it initially, it got a little ways underground and then basically popped back up. And they uh, worked on it for a while. Um, the InSight lander has a big robotic arm on it. So they pushed against the side of the arm, thinking that if this thing is like skipping out of the dirt and rock surfaces that it's digging against, maybe we can put pressure and that'll force it down. Eventually, they try putting pressure on the top of it, even though that risks damage to the uh, connectors coming from the top of the probe back to the spacecraft. And unfortunately, just none of that has has worked. And uh, this got lost in the shuffle a little bit over the last six weeks here in Liftoff because we've had so much weird stuff going on. Uh, but basically, in January... Uh, the team called it and said that we need to focus on other things. This obviously isn't going to work. Um, but despite that, Insight still has lots of work to do. And actually, about the same time, saw its initial mission lifespan extended, now running through December uh, 22. So another uh, almost two years. or almost, Yeah, I guess almost two years. Yeah, uh, It's still going to monitor for Mars quakes. All the seismic stuff still works. It's still capturing data about the atmosphere. Uh, so they, they're going to still do that work, but they're going to leave the mole where it is on the surface and, uh, and stop spending time and energy and risk to the spacecraft, uh, risk of the lander, 
uh, continue to mess with it. Sorry, Mole. Sad. Sad, sad Mole. But they really <laughs> did try everything they had at their disposal. We've talked about this before in this, uh, about the situation is you only have what you took with you, right? And so they were willing to use the arm in a bunch of different ways to see if they could get it to dig, and it just it just wouldn't do it. Uh, and it'll be a learning experience. And I think if future hardware includes probes like this, you know, they'll they'll take what they learned from this failure and roll that in for sure. To whatever comes next. It's what they do best. Their uh, concept of what uh, drilling into Martian soil was going to be is very different now, having seen what happened with the mole. So now they know. For next time, rest in peace, little buddy. I have a piece of of uh, brief news. A couple couple quick things. Uh, before we move on, I want to note that we've been talking about international space exploration and international politics. All space stuff is connected to politics because governments fund so much of what goes on in space. And uh, we talked about how China, like the U.S. is barred from talking to China about space because of a law uh, passed by Congress. Russia... Uh, well, we talked about the Artemis Accords, which, remember, originally weren't accords. They were demands by NASA yeah. that uh, a few countries have signed on. So now they're sort of accords. Now that the uh, European Space Agency, Japanese Space Agency, and uh, Canada's Space Agency have signed on uh, to the Artemis Accords, which includes going to, you know, helping build the gateway and probably getting seats for their astronauts down to the moon at some point in the future. And, like, there's a lot of deals being made there. Well, Russia... Ha, was not impressed by the Artemis Accords, Artemis plans, and uh, expressed that. And now they've expressed it even further by saying that uh, they're going to work with China on an international scientific lunar station orbiting the moon. So they're basically, um, I don't, I don't want to say this is sort of like a spite thing, but I do think that Russia has decided to work with China instead of work with uh, the U.S. and its other partners. Uh, and that's a big deal because the Russian Space Agency is obviously a, a partner on the International Space Station, and Russia spends the third most on space of any country in the world after the U.S. and China. So this is an interesting potential realignment in terms of lunar uh, study and lunar missions that Russia is going to apparently team up with China. It's unclear on what this actually will mean, how much they're spending. Are they really just sort of like supplying some systems for China or is there something more than that? It's just kind of unclear on the details, but um, their, their declared alignment now is that Russia is going to work with China on a lunar space station. Yeah, this this came after um, I think it was late last year that uh, Russia said that it was not going to be involved in Gateway. Yeah, and and in the background you have things like Commercial Crew and NASA still having the opportunity to buy seats from Russia, but I think obviously NASA wants to get away from that. Well, it's an interesting story, and it's not in our notes, but the 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 story there yeah. seems to be that so first off they the NASA now has a seat on a Soyuz launch coming up but it's it was bought by Axiom Space as a commercial thing and then NASA bought it from Axiom which is interesting like that they, they handed it over um and I know that NASA has said that they would really prefer to have the uh shared seats basically a seat exchange between Soyuz 
and uh, commercial crew where they have more, um, you know, the basically for rotation and backup to have always, if you had an emergency on commercial crew and all the Americans who were on the space station were from commercial crew, they would all have to leave and there'd be no Americans on the space station. So they don't want that to happen. Um, but that requires <laughs> a deal with Roscosmos for a seed exchange, and that hasn't happened. So it's kind of out there. It's an open question about the future of, of uh, how it's going to work between the U.S. and Russia in terms of getting people to and from the space station. Let's talk about uh, SpaceX doing stuff in Texas. Yeah, there's a lot going on. A lot of stuff ha- happening down in Boca Chica Village. Um, Starship uh, SN10 uh, did a, its its flight, like the latest. Remember the last two have blown up uh, with a hard landing. Mm-hmm. Um, SN10 did the same thing where it went up quite a ways, and then it did the thing where it hovered, and then it did the thing where it tipped over and used its little fins and stuff, and then at the very last minute, it, f- it does a fire of its engines, and it flips, and it lands, and uh, they did it this time. It landed. Um, it it looks like the landing little landing feet didn't quite work right, and it landed, and it was sort of sitting at an angle, and there was like a fire burning, and they tried yeah. to use the little robot fire suppressors to 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 put out the fire, and then like I think it was like about ten minutes after it landing, it exploded. So yeah, progress. I was <laughs> I was watching the stream, and it landed, and then I had to go do something else, and then you uh, sent me a message in Slack. You were like, "Boom!" I was like, "Wait, no, they landed!" And then I, I like reopened the live stream. You know, one of the unofficial ones is like, "Where did it go?" Yeah, SpaceX uh, cut away from the live stream. They're like, "Well, we did it. Goodbye." Yep. And then the uh, the unofficial live stream. Uh, kept going and they they it, that was actually really fun because that's a, a bunch of uh, space fans and people who cover uh, cover space who have this network of cameras and all that and they saw that what what we all saw right which is the fire and the fact that it was kind of li- listing to the side a little bit and they're like we have some replays of the launch to show you but we're not going to show them to you yet because there's a fire down there and and then boom it it mm-hmm. exploded and. Uh, but again, you know, that's that's what they're doing. Like they're learning as they go and in spectacular fashion, but that's the whole SpaceX thing is that they have well, I mean, like how many how many launches of the space launch system have there been? None. Yeah. Because they're doing lots of tests and then they when they launch it, they're going to launch it for real. And SpaceX isn't doing that with their system, right? That SpaceX, they're just building these stainless steel spaceships and uh, firing them off and seeing what happens and then learning and making changes and doing it again. And this is what they did with Falcon 1. This is what they did with Falcon 9. And they're doing it again with Starship. Um, and you see the progress because SN10 did land. It landed a little hard, a little bit, or its legs weren't quite right. Like, it, it, it didn't... It, it somebody said any landing you can walk away from is a good landing and i, I was thinking might need to run <laughs> <laughs> to get away from it but but it, yes it did so that's progress and and you know sn11 rolled out like they're already on to the next one they know that they're gonna they're gonna blow these things up but they are progressing to uh get this thing um solved and that's that's how they work so it's very exciting um stuff going on there uh, SpaceX is also talking about its future plans for the Texas site, right? They w- they've got a lot of stuff they want to do down there. 
I mean, they want to incorporate Boca Chica Village as the city of Starbase, Texas. And I wonder, is that like, have they moved a bunch of people there? Uh, and their their SpaceX employees are going to become the citizens of Boca Chica Village. Right. Is Elon uh, going to be the mayor? Town, you know. I don't know what's going on with that. But they're also uh, they're they've got their plans filed for what they want to do to use it as a spaceport. And I this is one of those things that I think hasn't been talked about as much as as maybe it should be. That although SpaceX might launch Starship from uh, Kennedy Space Center, there is a pad there that they they can use. Um, their plan right now is to do this all in Texas from the SpaceX facility that they're building in Boca Chica Village in South Texas. So they their plans are to build two orbital launch pads. So that's the full stack uh, with the Falcon Super Heavy, or the sorry, it's not Falcon, it's just Super Heavy and, and Starship, the whole Starship launch system, right? As Eric Berger told us, SLS of a different kind. Uh, one of those is already being built, the orbital launch pads. Two suborbital launch pads, one of which is already being used. Two landing pads, one of which already exists. Two test stands for more work on these rockets. A place of honor for Starhopper. Starhopper's been hanging around. All the video, that the, their, their first little test that they did from the little weird Starhopper that succeeded. Um, and you keep seeing it. It's like a little mascot. You can see that it's hanging out by the <laughs> pad, just, just being there. Hasn't been destroyed by a crashing rocket yet. Uh, but they're planning a, like a place of honor for it. Um, and uh, don't forget that there's also Phobos and Deimos. These are the two oil rigs that SpaceX has purchased. <laughs> and the idea there is that they are, they want to use them as landing sites out in the Gulf. So if you think about the drone ships that they've been using for Falcon 9, this is the equivalent for the Starship launch system is oil rigs. Um, so yeah. There's, there's some irony in that. Elon Musk being the guy. Right. And with it, well, he's, you know, he, he's trying to repurpose oil rigs into something else. So yeah, stuff's going on. There's a lot of SpaceX Starship stuff continuing to happen and we'll continue uh, talking about it. But, uh, they did get a landing and then they also got an explosion. So it's a two for one, really. All right. Let's, uh, let's take a break and then we'll talk about the SLS. All right. Uh, this episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Tuparev Technologies. More than a decade ago, a group of astronomers met successively for two years at the Heterogeneous Network of Telescopes Conference, which took place in Tucson, Arizona and Göttingen, Germany. They would discuss the creation of a global network of interconnected astronomical observatories. Now, because of the p- pandemic... Because of the need of the scientific community to collaborate remotely on global projects, the need for such a network has never been more acute than now. A couple of months ago, the Star Cluster team at Tuparev Technologies decided to finally implement this idea, and they are announcing it. It is the Polis Initiative, Public Observatory, Location and Information Service. And it's an open protocol of APIs that will allow anyone to obtain information about observatories around the world and in the solar system. At later stages, it will allow different observatories to exchange information and collaborate on joint scientific projects or exchange observation times. The first experimental POLIS service is already up and running. An app and an information site are currently being implemented. Find out more about POLIS by going to GitHub. Yes, github.com slash astro dash POLIS. And you are welcome to join the initiative there or just go to starcluster.app and subscribe to the Star Cluster newsletter. Thank you to Tuparev for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay FM. All right. It is that time for the SLS segment. 
space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. Ka-ching! SLS segment. Ka-ching! Money, money, money! <laughs> I have a green run update. Okay. Yeah, green's the color of money. So tell me about the green run. One day the green run will be like the mole. It'll just be over. We don't talk about it anymore. I don't know. Maybe. I guess. <laughs> we spoke with Eric last time about the valve issue that stopped the initial hot fire test. That has been uh, repaired. And NASA now says that a second test should be coming mid-March. As we record this on March 9th, there's not a date yet. Uh, but it seems like this is uh, just around the corner again, hopefully. Probably. Yep. Yep. This time for sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Sticky valves. They'll get you. Every time. In Florida, things are moving much more smoothly. Uh, mm. NASA has announced that they have completed stacking the solid rocket boosters for the Artemis 1 rocket. These are upgraded, bigger versions of what you saw on the shuttle stack. They are in the vehicle assembly building on the mobile launch platform. Uh, both the left and right are all set to go. This work just began in November. The stacking seems to be pretty straightforward. There's still some stuff to do. There's some electrical stuff, testing, that sort of thing. But these things are going to be ready to go uh, by the time the core stage does the green run, is loaded on a barge, taken to Kennedy, and then it will be uh, all assembled together before it rolls out. Uh, that work will take a while, uh, but the SRBs will be ready to go. All right. We're, it's, it's happening very slowly. Coming together. Maybe, maybe it's coming together. So did you see 60 Minutes? Did you see the 60 Minutes on Sunday, the American uh, news program on CBS, did a segment about Artemis? I thought the timing was super interesting, as mm-hmm. there's not a NASA administrator, and mm-hmm. we don't really know what's happening. No, they even um, used part of that clip where the uh, where Jen Psaki, the press secretary for Biden, when asked about Artemis, was like, I am aware of Artemis, and this is yeah. what it is. Yeah. And they used that as like, this is the administration's affirmation on Artemis. And I was like, I don't know if I would call that affirmation. That was more like they were made aware that it exists. Yeah. Uh, you can go watch this on the web. Uh, yeah, I watched it this morning. Uh, it's a really interesting piece. You know, most people don't obviously don't follow this the way that we do. So they've got to do some work explaining what Artemis is. They talk about the SLS. There's actually a lot more detail about the rocket itself than I would have anticipated. Uh, Of course, a lot of conversation about the cost and timeline as well. And contrasting that uh, through an interview with uh, Lori Garver, who's a former deputy administrator of NASA, whose point of view is that they should just turn to the Falcon Heavy and and scrap the SLS. And get out out of the SLS. The story's fascinating because it's, you know, I watch and I'm like, oh man, they did a story about this. What's it going to be? Because we follow this closely. And it's actually three stories in one. Like one story is, hey, did you know that there is a plan to go back to the moon? Uh, let's tell you about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the second part of the story is uh, because, and oh, and the first part, it's also, and they're going to put the first woman on the moon. Speaking of which, there are a lot of women who are in positions of authority at NASA these days. And so they talked to the head of, of uh, launch control, who is a woman. That was a really fun thing in launch control. Uh, it, it, which is at Kennedy Space Center. That was uh, it's always fun to see that. That's where they're firing them off. It doesn't transfer over to uh, mission control until after they they launch, right? Yeah. Um, and then they and they talk to Jody Singer, who is basically in charge of Marshall Flight Center. 
uh, where they're they're doing all this you know rocket work and SLS work, um, and so they're like two women in positions of major authority in sending uh, a woman to the moon for the first time. So that's that's story number two, and then story number three is what the heck is going on with the SLS, mm-hmm. and that's where they bring in Lori Garver, who worked in the Obama administration as the number two, basically uh, for uh, like Charlie Bolden was the administrator, she was the a deputy administrator, and she's the voice of everybody saying why are we using the sls it's a relic of a bygone era um uh it it costs uh you know a huge amount of money uh garver's quotes are i mean i kind of want to say for space purposes i would call them savage they're like yeah they're she says the industry said they could do it for six billion dollars in six years it's been 20 billion dollars in 11 years i would not have recommended the government build a 27 billion dollar rocket when the private sector is building rockets nearly as large for no cost to the taxpayer and when and she calls it a socialist program uh and bill <laughs> bill Whitaker's like uh really and she's like well yeah like this is us getting money the whole goal here is just to distribute money yeah. to all the congressional districts which we've talked about at length right so for her to say that and kind of dig i thought it was uh i thought it was really fun for her <laughs> that she was like she's letting it rip right and the response and again i don't it, this is a complicated issue but i will just say that jody singer of marshall is uh, towing the company line uh, in that piece. And it's I found it kind of painful because, you know, what's she going to say? She She's in charge of this thing. Um, but, you know, her best rejoinder was, uh, was it has work in over 45 states and over 1,100 vendors. It's a national vehicle. There's over 25,000 people that have jobs because of SLS. So, you know, that's great. But on the other hand, that's exactly what Lori Garver is talking about, that the SLS is a political invention. It's a jobs program. It funnels money to people's, uh, you know, congressional districts and to the states of the senators who voted for it. And uh, I don't think her argument really counters. I think it kind of enforces uh, Lori Garver's argument, which is Mm -hmm. what we've talked about here again and again, which is this is, I had to pause while we were watching this and and say to my wife, this is the one where we talked about on liftoff, how there's a guy out in the middle of nowhere in my home county up in the foothills in in California, who is apparently supplied some wires for the SLS or something. It's like, okay, yeah. uh, yay, jobs. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to have yeah. that map in the show notes. It's from 2019 now, so it may not be super up to date, but it is this thing NASA put together, and you can hover over your state. Uh, guess how many? Well, they're still, and they're still quoting 25,000 jobs and 1,100 yeah. vendors. They're still quoting those numbers even now. Guess how many vendors in Idaho? How many? Six. Ooh. You think nice. that's more or less than South Dakota? I don't know. Got to be in the ballpark. Yeah, South Dakota's two. Montana's the lowest with just one. Yeah, it's like we're counting electoral votes, which we kind of are because we're counting congressional districts. I think that's <laughs> what's going on there. So you know, it's an interesting story. I'm really glad that reusability came up. Um, they, I, I was, I actually turned again, turned to Lauren cause she doesn't listen to lift off because she just, as she would say, she just hears me talk about space. So she doesn't need the podcast. And I, I said to her, I paused the show and I was like, those are space shuttle main engines and they just drop them into the ocean. And I shouldn't have paused it because literally the next thing that happens is they say, yeah, those are space shuttle main engines and they just waste them and they're not reusable and everybody else is doing reusability and this thing's not reusable. So like it, it covers the bases i thought pretty well 
Um, it, the story's weird because it is about those three different things, and it, it's kind of can't decide what it wants to be. I think they went in thinking it was going to be this uh, really inspirational piece about uh, women returning a woman, rim, women sending a woman to the surface of the moon. And then they talked to Lori Garver and they're like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, SLS, huh? So uh-huh. Um, I just kept coming back to uh, Eric Berger here last time saying that he put the over under on SLS, total SLS launches at one and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although, although I will say, Lori Garver, when asked by Bill Whitaker of sixty Minutes, um, so are they gonna kill it and just use SpaceX? And she's like, nah. Congress is just gonna keep the money flowing. Like she doesn't, she doesn't actually. At least she said she doesn't actually believe that they will stop the flow of money to this thing, even though that would be uh, the right thing to do. I don't think she's wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's no evidence uh, other than, you know, again, we've talked about the composition of Congress has changed and Senator Shelby is retiring and is no longer in charge of that committee. Like, it's possible. Um, but what we are seeing is the uh, everything is getting siphoned off. Like, all these things that were must use SLS are just not using SLS. And that's going to lead to another issue, which is instead of killing the program outright, they'll launch one or two of them, maybe three of them, and they'll say, oh, we have no launches lined up. Like there's literally, and at that point, all of the other stuff will have progressed to the point where they may just retire it, like declare victory and move on after three launches. Yeah. Uh, that that to me seems like maybe the most likely scenario, assuming that it all comes together and the green one run works and the first launch works and assuming no major technical problems from here on out, which is a, a big assumption, I would say. It, it feels like that's the most likely thing is that they'll just sort of like bury it eventually. But I don't know. My thinking aligns with yours. Uh, I think as it goes further and further and other things just get reassigned, it's like, oh, we have no place to go. And because it's not reusable, they got to build each one, right? It's not like, oh, we've got a couple in a hangar we can spruce up. I think it'll just slowly peter out. Right. They'll they'll do, you know, they'll add this contract to SpaceX and this other launch contract. And they'll, they'll start adding all these other launch contracts to support Artemis. And then before you know it, there won't be anything left, right? Yeah. I think uh, Europa Clipper could be the canary in the SLS coal mine. Oh, yeah, for sure, right? That they've, they've that one finally just being taken off of the SLS's plate. Because the truth is, no mission wants to be on SLS. It's too expensive. So what does that say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it, was, it was fun to see it. I was glad they brought this up. Uh, more people need to know the uh the narrative of the cost of sls versus what's going on in commercial space because it's a it's a big deal so i'm not saying this will this will dramatically change policy but every little bit helps i think we wanted to uh wrap up this week's episode talking about alan mcdonald for a second you may have seen this um in the news he recently passed away Uh, he was a uh, an employee of Morton Thicol in Utah, a life a lifer, as they yeah. call, came straight out of uh, Montana State University, uh, straight into work there as an engineer. Yeah, he worked on the um, design systems for the um, Minuteman missile, which was, it's like America's premier nuclear missile, <laughs> um, and gained a reputation as a straight shooter. He was always going to tell you what he thought. He wasn't going to sh- uh, shy away. And so in 1984... Morton Thiokol put him in charge of its big space shuttle project, the solid rocket boosters for the space shuttle, which resulted 
in him being the person the night before the Challenger launch being asked to approve the launch. And he refused. He said, it's, and this all came out later. He said, it's too cold to launch. He had a bunch of reasons. He had like Mm -hmm. three different reasons. One of which was it's too cold to launch. And specifically citing that the SRBs uh, had materials in them that could crack and could rupture due to the cold temperatures. Um, And at a, at a meeting a month later after the Challenger disaster, in a closed hearing, um, a NASA official who was trying to avoid the truth of what happened said that Thiokol had approved the launch, but didn't mention that what actually happened is NASA pressured Thiokol executives to override their engineers and approve the launch. Right. And he rose his hand. He was in the audience. He was in the gallery. It was a closed meeting, but he was there because he was one of the Thiokol engineers and said, that's not true. And they called, I mean, they called him up and put him on the microphone to tell the truth, which is that the engineers at Morton Thiokol had said, you can't launch this thing. And that NASA pushed Thiokol to at an executive level to approve it. And it's just such a great story because he could have signed off on the launch. He could have stayed silent at the hearing. And he sta- instead, he tells the Rogers Commission uh, that the shuttle shouldn't launch in cold weather. That is the thing that shifts the investigation to be focused on the O-rings. And the rest is history. Like, he he did not stay silent and the truth came out. I mean, just what a dude, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that is... <laughs> So many opportunities to do the wrong thing or to look the other way, and he just stood up for what he knew was right. And it was it was based on evidence, right? There had been previous missions where there had been burned by, and they knew that this material, the, the O-ring gasket material, they knew that it would be brittle when it was cold. And you combine those two things, and you end up with the Challenger disaster. Yep. And... Yeah. It failed exactly as they said it would. And, you know, the narrative at the time, I know you were not paying attention to space at the time because you were a baby. <laughs> you had just been born. But I will tell you, the narrative at the time was very much like, we don't know what this is. It's a surprise. We're going to have to fix it. And this moment with Alan McDonald talking to the Rogers Commission, this was the moment where it became clear um, they did know what was going on. The, yeah, the, the exactly. tragedy of the tragedy of the Challenger accident is that they knew what would fail, said it would fail, said they shouldn't launch, and NASA basically talked the executives at their contractor that was reliant on money from NASA to say yes anyway, and seven astronauts died. So that that was it was a big shift, and and it led to a, a lot of changes in. Uh, NASA culture, and it led to a lot of scrutiny, uh, rightfully so, on NASA and NASA's attempts to get their their space shuttle launches off, even when it was unsafe to do so. Um, the the rest of the story too. I mean, you talk about this guy being uh, making these these tough decisions, but the right decisions. He got demoted. He was retaliated against at Thiokol. Unbelievable. Um, he got demoted, and then something amazing happened, which is. Uh, a congressman introduced a resolution in the House that basically said, if you retaliate against your engineers for disclosing safety issues on your uh, government programs, you will be banned from all future NASA 
contracts. Good. At which point, Thiokol <laughs> promoted uh, Alan McDonald to a vice president, put him in charge of the redesign of the SRBs. He worked there for 15 more years until he retired and ended up with, as a speaker. And he, he co-wrote a book about this issue. And his my the impression I get is that the thing that he talked about as a speaker, uh, you know, various corporate speaking events and all that, was about integrity and telling the truth and standing up to power um, and telling your bosses what they don't want to hear if it's true, which is the perfect story, right? But that's also a thing that, that people need to hear. And that was what he did with the rest of his life was, was talk about how he came to make these decisions and have the bravery to do it and sort of encourage other people to do the same, which is, uh, it's a great legacy, right? He, so as you said, he passed away, he was 83, passed away on Saturday, but what a legacy of, of standing up in the face of brutal consequences. He got demoted for this and doing the right thing, which was Alan McDonald's legacy. We need more people like Alan McDonald in the world. Yeah, for, for sure, for sure. So great story. Um, and, and so condolences to his family, but what a legacy, just great story. If you want to find more about the stories we spoke about, head on over to our website at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 145. There you can, uh, get in touch via email. You can become a member and support the show directly and get a bunch of cool perks from Relay FM, the podcast network that we're on. You can find us all on Twitter. You can find Jason there as Jason L. And you can follow me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all. <laughs>